And so I see so many entrepreneurs living the old paradigm of living someone else's dream. How can I succeed, 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 succeed? And it's so important now to redefine what success is, to redefine what happiness is. And so they, they, they have, some have very full bank accounts, but they're spiritually bankrupt. Some have huge spirituality and they do all the things you need to do to be um, put into that category, but they have been empty bank accounts. Helping CEOs and business leaders discover the energy to perform exceptional brilliance and positively impact the lives of those around them. Be inspired by world leaders and next level gurus. This is the Active CEO Podcast, where the ordinary don't belong. And now your hosts, Craig Johns and Ben Gathercole. On this episode of the Active CEO Podcast, we speak with an award-winning author, inspirational speaker, spiritual entrepreneur, and businesswoman who has harnessed energy from extreme adversity to live a successful life and career. Born in Vietnam, she escaped communist rule at the end of the Vietnam War by boat with her family. They were taken into a Thai refugee camp before being accepted into Australia, where they settled in Cambramatta, Sydney. She started working in hospitality at her family restaurant from the young age of seven. In 2002, she co-founded the world's most awarded Vietnamese restaurant, Red Lantern, in Sydney, with her partner, Mark Jensen, who is a phenomenal chef and has been a Master Chef Australia guest. Her brother, Luke Nguyen, is a celebrity TV chef and has also been a Master Chef Vietnam judge and a great author. Known for captivating audiences through her aura and energy, she studied a BA Communications from the University of Technology, Sydney. She won the 2008 Newcomer Writer of the Year for her award-winning book, Secrets of the Red Lantern, and the 2012 Telstra Business Award for Medium Business. This gifted writer and compelling speaker has a sense for adventure, is eager to learn, and is excited for new challenges. She recently launched her new book, The Way of the Spiritual Entrepreneur, I'm excited to introduce to you a beautiful soul, devoted mother, pragmatic businesswoman, and very special human being, Pauline Nguyen. Pauline, welcome to the show. Thank you, Craig. Thank you for having me. Uh, it's always uh, wonderful to um, listen to such wonderful introductions, and it's a great chance to sit and reflect, and wow, that's where I came from. And that's what it bloody took to get here. <laughs> <laughs> and you've done really well. And look, we're sitting in this, uh, in this beautiful location here in Surrey Hills or Darlinghurst um, at the Red Lenton restaurant today. So you might hear in the background, uh, you know, they're cooking a few things. So it adds to a bit of the atmosphere for today. You had a very adventurous start to life. Uh, what was it like growing up in Vietnam and, and then taking on a very risky boat ride to leave for brighter horizons? I left Vietnam at quite a young age. I was only three. So the memories that I have are um, particularly flashes of colour. Um, I do remember flashes of colour, I remember smells being in the refugee camp. My father smuggled my brother and I and, and my mother and he, he built a boat and we were with three other families. So all up there were 12 of us on the boat and we spent nine days out at sea wow. and ended up in a Thai refugee camp where we spent a year. We were only me meant to spend a few months 
but that was a year and that's where my mother gave birth to my brother Luke mm. um, you may know him he's the famous one <laughs> and um, Australia finally accepted us but in particular my most vivid memories are the memories of growing up in Australia in the camp, it was flashes of colors, smells. Um, uh, for example, I remember this particular faded blue color. Um, and, and what that blue represented, uh, I realized later on, was that um, when my mother gave birth to my uh, brother Luke, my brother Lewis and I, we would run around the camp and beg everyone for their towels and everyone had uh, uniform mm. faded blue towels and we begged them for their towels so we could cut them up and make nappies for Luke. <laughs> <laughs> so there's flash, lots of uh, beautiful colours and, and, and smells and, but growing up in, uh, in Sydney was um, really tough, Craig, it was tough. And I can speak uh, about it now with um, without getting as emotional as I used to and when I say we used to you know um, over 10 15 years ago um, I've done the work um, I, I don't I'm not hijacked by those emotions anymore mm. um, of course there are some memories still uh, stored in my body parts but I'm not hijacked by those uh, by those emotions uh, my father suffered terribly from PTSD from the war, his, his job uh, as a lieutenant in the army was to uh, go back to the scene and uh, count the dead bodies after a kill. And, and one, kill, one shell would kill so many people. And um, his own bullet wounds resembles a question mark down the length of his spine. And so having witnessed the horrors of war and then escaping by boat and then coming to a new country um, with nothing. You know, we didn't have the laws, the language or the systems and um, having to start with uh, n nothing and failure was not an option. There was no choice but to succeed. And so what so himself and so many of his friends also uh, experienced was his trauma. Uh, and uh, not a lot of people knew what PTSD was at the time. I only found out what it was when I wrote the first book. And he had nowhere to dump his anger but on us kids and on my parents, and I'm sorry, on my mother. And so um, he was a very angry, violent man, and he also had a mission to succeed. He had no choice to. And uh, lots of physical violence, emotional violence, mental violence. Um, I started working when I was seven. My father was quite the entrepreneur. He had... Um, a restaurant, he had Cabra Matter's very first video library, Cabra Matter's very first, um, he was Cabra Matter's very first barista, um, we had Cabra Matter's very first ice cream parlor, <laughs> and he, had an, uh, he operated a driving school on the wow. side as well, and us kids, uh, my brothers and I provided the child labor. <laughs> and so from a very young age, um, what he did instill into us was a ferocious work ethic. Um, we knew how to work really, really hard. Um, but along with all the abuse and the high expectations, um, mentally, um, emotionally, look, we were, we were strong in some areas, but in other areas we were a mess. Very challenging time, uh, but I think also a lot of valuable lessons you learned along the way that have allowed you to be such a successful businesswoman and, and mother now, I would imagine. 
Of course, but that was also a choice I made, the choice to give meaning to my suffering. Yeah. Um, so many people I, I, I see now as a coach and a mentor, um, they haven't the tools yet to choose the thoughts and reframe the stories that give them the most peace, the most freedom and the most joy. And um, that is a very powerful yeah. objective so that we can make sense of it all. You know, our purpose on this earth is to figure it out and make sense of it all, right? Yeah. So, so that, that whole focus around achieving and, and being a high achiever, and as you said, you had no choice. Yeah. Because if you failed, there was nothing to land on. You, you're in a foreign country with you know, no support and mm. no money you know, in the background. So a very challenging time for the whole family, and it's just great to see how, you've, how the whole family's evolved from then. So... Mm. Well done. You obviously were quite drawn to hospitality. Was you know you moved into that? You sort of continued in that frame up until now. Was that something that you kind of just evolved in because that's what you grew up with, or was it something that was really passionate inside of you and, and, and gave you that purpose? Certainly, the passion came from my parents. Um, they both worked at Gomlan, which is the market store Gomlan, famous markets uh, in in Vietnam and uh, they, they sold uh, fresh produce, uh, fresh fruit, fresh vegetables. And that's very much a part of the Vietnamese cuisine, the freshness of the herbs. And uh, we do very little to the actual produce. So it's very, uh, it's not like Thai cuisine, for example, where there's a lot of flavoring put on. It's you know, in your face, it's lots of chili and, um, and fish sauce and sugar. It's a completely different, not a completely different style of cuisine, but it's a different style of cuisine. And Vietnamese pro, um, pride themselves on the produce. And so coming to a new country, um, that was what my parents knew. And that was what they were proud of. And it's not surprising that they opened a restaurant. Uh, but then my, I, I can see a lot of myself in my father as well. Oh, there's, there's this new man called Mr. Kapagani that's come to town. What does he do? Ice cream. Let's make ice cream. <laughs> Let's open an ice cream parlor. Oh, there's this thing called a cappuccino. What's a cappuccino? Oh, it's like coffee and, and you do froth. And I remember growing up in the 80s and, and having to froth milk and doing those <laughs> 80s cappuccinos where the milk is like 10 centimetres high, you know. Oh, let's, let's learn how to be a barista and we'll open up a, a cafe as well as a restaurant. So he was always so eager to learn and master a craft. And, um, and then uh, at the time, the blockbuster releases were Full Metal Jacket, Platoon, <laughs> Good Morning Vietnam, let's open a video library. <laughs> so open a video library. Uh, and so there was always passions in, in these different areas. And as I said, my, my, my brothers and I were, were the child labor. <laughs> um, every morning before school, we'd get up and uh, get ready for school. We'd drive out to Cabramatta. Uh, my brothers would set up the tables and chairs inside and out. I would be in the uh, kitchen helping my parents with the mise en place. Um, we'd catch the train to school. We'd catch the train back home to the restaurant. We'd help clean up after lunch service. We'd help set up for dinner service. We caught the bus home to Bonnie Rig, and I made my brothers do the household chores and the homework, and I cooked 
cooked and cleaned for them. And on top of all of this, we had to get good grades as well. <laughs> so <laughs> that, was, that was pretty much our, our life. <laughs> That's probably a good strategy to keep you out of trouble. Oh, we, yeah, look, we were um, locked in the house. <laughs> you know, social life, birthday parties, forget all of that. Um, and I guess that has uh, very much instilled into me, sure, a ferocious work ethic, but also this sense of um, having absolute freedom. To express myself now and having um, a, 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 a being adamant to not be controlled or manipulated and be my own very very true self so we'll, we'll move forward now into early 2000s and your brother Luke is is kind of excited about setting up his own restaurant and you get involved tell us how that came about well my very um, this very special brother Luke opening a restaurant was always He's one of those guys who says, here's my tick box, here are all my tick boxes. You know, I want to be a television presenter, tick. I want to travel the world and uh, bring Vietnamese cuisine to the world, a tick. You know, I, I want to open a restaurant and introduce Vietnamese cuisine to the masses. Uh, everyone knew Thai food, everyone knew Japanese food. Um, Vietnamese food was still a mystery. Yeah. Um, or it was done um, very traditionally with not such great produce, shitty service for mica tables. Mm -hmm. <laughs> and Luke and I both had a professional waiting background. I, I became a professional waiter to get myself through university. I worked in some of the best restaurants in Sydney under the tutelage of some of the best sommeliers and, and chefs, um, as did Luke. And so uh, one of his dreams was open this restaurant, send Vietnamese food out there to the masses, tick, you know. And so he decided to open a restaurant in Surrey Hills. And this would be 17 years ago. Red Lantern's been wow. around for seven, this is our 17th year. And at the time I was, i just come back from living five years in Paris and London. Uh, my background is film and television. I studied BA Com um, and as well as at uh, AFTERS, Australian Film Television Radio School. Uh, I went overseas, worked in post-production for several years and came back and um, decided to go freelance producing, production, managing, which I was never really good at. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> and my brother said, I'm going to open a restaurant. And I said, well, well let me help you, um, uh, especially with the business side, the management side of it. Same skills applied to production managing for film and television as to um, highly organizing. And at the time, also, I was dating Mark. And Luke needed a chef, and I said, Mark, do you want to give this a go? Mark had never even held a cleaver before or worked oh, wow. a wok before. And so um, he, had, was, he had already created quite a name for himself um, working at the Olympic Hotel. And he said, well, yeah, I've been doing this for five or six years now. Why not learn a new cuisine? And um, the cuisine he's very good at or had the background in was Mediterranean and French cooking. And so... Uh, joining Red Lantern, 
he was exposed to all the secret family recipes and he was trained by this amazing 70-year-old man called Sifu and Sifu means master in, um, in, in Chinese. You, if you, you can be a kung fu master, you call him Sifu or a, or a master at the wok in the kitchen. And so Sifu taught Luke, taught Luke and Mark um, all the skills of how to run an Asian kitchen. So their um, teachings were very rapid. Yeah, wow. Well, so. Combining all your learning experiences with the, with the Sifu, with the master, which is a, a great way to kick it off. So now you're, you're managing director of Red Lantern and, and have been for some time. So how, how would you describe your leadership style? My leadership style now is very much to inspire and I'm good at the big picture. If I go too small, I'm in pain. And so I know my strengths, I know my weaknesses, and I surround myself with people who compensate for that. My husband, Mark, for example, loves the detail. So he gets down to all the details. We're very different uh, in the way we approach things. I surround myself, my restaurant manager, Lorraine, she's been with us for about 10 years. She loves detail. It excites her. Um, my colleague Fung, who's leaving soon, she's having a baby. <laughs> what am I going to do with that Fung? Um, Fung is detail-oriented as well. And so it's a um, leadership style where, hey, these are the things I'm not good at. Sure, someone can hold a gun to my head and I can absolutely make myself good at it, but I'm not, I don't enjoy it. And so they can do the things that I can't do. And um, a lot of the things I can do that they can't do. Um, as a restaurant, as an employer, we don't micromanage. Um, if we micromanage, our employees become very expensive to yes. us. Um, when I'm in town, uh, if I'm not traveling, speaking, teaching, um, I'm in the restaurant touching my customers, um, touching our raving fan guests, touching my um, team members. Um, I'm the one um, delivering food, polishing glasses, wiping down tables. Um, it's important, it's an important part uh, to remind me of what it's all about. And it's also a lovely way for my team members to see uh, Pauline's just one of us, Luke's just one of us, Mark's just one of us. Nothing is, a, is, is too hard for them to do, you know. Um, uh, it's uh, very grounding, it's very levelling and it's funny, you know, Craig, so many people, so many people come and say, but you're the boss, you're Pauline, what are you doing serving food? <laughs> you know, what do you do? Well, it's our restaurant, we can do whatever we want. <laughs> it's amazing how many CEOs or leaders forget to come back down to where it all started and get involved in the day-to-day -day and, and, as you say, get really close to those customers and understand it. Um, we, we've talked to, uh, I think, Michael uh, Seawood was from Skybus and he used to, he's a CEO, but he would go out there and clip the ticket because yeah. he needed to understand the, the pain points of both the workers yeah. and also the customers. So. Uh, absolutely. As a restaurant, we have um, uh, a lot of feedback tools and um, there's a lot of resilience that comes from that as well because um, 
you know, seeing the transformation in my team members, human nature, when you get a, some, some, some negative feedback or a little bit of criticism, it's that, you know, now I'm gonna go stiff and it's gonna hurt my ego. Whereas I see that as gold. If I have a, um, an unhappy um, staff member or an unhappy guest, I see that as gold, <laughs> you know? Um, oh, something's been brought to my attention. Otherwise, we live in this world with our eyes shut and our ears shut and we don't know what's going on, you know? But it's uh, how can we use that? How can we frame that for constant improvement, constant evolution, never-ending improvement? So um, as the leader, it's a constant opportunity for reframing, reframing, reframing. I, I, I do a lot of reframing for my team. And obviously a successful recipe so far, you've, I think you believe your staff turnover is around about 10%, which is extremely low, and the average length of employment is six to 10 years. That's um, right. So a remarkable achievement uh, for you. So, and, and I know when I came and had dinner here just after Christmas, you kind of, as a, as a guest or as a person eating here, you felt like you were part of the family and you could feel the vibe and you could feel the connectedness of it. And I know you speak around the importance of uh, the employees acting like owners and, and yeah. you talked about not micromanaging there. And so what strategies do you do to achieve that? Um, I think as a, um, this is one of the strategies of the spiritual entrepreneur. It's doing everything that we can to stay in alignment every day. Um, to stay in alignment with joy, with inner peace, with inspiration. That's what spirituality is about. It's to be inspired, is to be in spirit. And so when you're inspired and in spirit, there's a wonderful sense. I'm not talking about happiness here. I'm talking about happiness in the pursuit not the pursuit of happiness. I'm talking about a, a, a wonderful sense of fearlessness, uh, a wonderful sense of knowing how to master my emotions and my, my thoughts so that I can stress less. Um, understanding myself so deeply that I'm not easily hacked not easily manipulated, not easily controlled. And what all of that does is it puts us in alignment and our vibration and frequency is so high that the people around us, and now we can talk about heart-brain coherence and the torus field of the heart and the electromagnetic signature, and that can possibly be another conversation. <laughs> but then when you say you come in and you feel the vibe, I believe those were your words, yeah. you're feeling the vibration you're feeling my vibration and, my, uh, and, our, and our Taurus field can extend you know, four meters each way. And um, that also uplifts the team members, that uplifts the guests. And uh, I've lost count over the years how many times people have come and they've said, I forget how much I laugh every time I'm here. <laughs> I forget how I feel every time I'm here. And so, um, a lot of spirituality is also physics that has not yet been explained. And uh, this is where the, my interest and my passion in biohacking, in um, the breath fitness, in 
raising our vibration in our meditations, in the words we use, um, the, the way we deliver it. And that plays a massive part. Um, and, and as you, you call, what, what did you say, strategy? Yeah. <laughs> uh, that is a, a very big part of the strategy. Yeah. And so to chunk all that down, it is leading by example. So you can feel the real pride and sense of everyone that works here. And, and also that, you know, you're talking about that spiritually or understanding or, or sort of proactively knowing what's going to happen. Uh, we had a couple of times where, say, a fork dropped off the table or chopsticks dropped off the table. And before they hit the ground, we had someone going, here, would you like another <laughs> chopstick or another <laughs> fork, right? So it was, it was, they were so in sense and so in tune with what was going on and, and the importance of staying connected so people enjoyed yeah. the whole experience here. Uh, just wonderful to be a part of. And it, it's, it's very rare. I have not experienced that level at any other restaurant in my life. And I've been to quite a few at different parts of the world. So it's, it's an amazing thing that you've developed here. So well done. Thank you very oh, much, yeah. Craig. Thank you. And um, having said that also, um, uh, I don't want to uh, overstate either. Um, in business and in life, it's impossible to please everyone. Yes. <laughs> uh, I, I've, I've learned that a long, a long time ago because um, I've learned that when people are uh, come in upset or, or angry or frustrated at whatever reason that they've brought in and their, their, their hearts and their minds are hijacked by the emo that emotion, everything tastes bitter. Mm everything tastes sour, yeah. you know? So uh, we, we do all of that. We're in tune and we're attuned, but we also realize that it is impossible to please everyone, yes. so it's okay. <laughs> uh, but thank you so much for, for recognizing that. So how has becoming a parent changed your approach to life and work? Uh, how can it not? <laughs> how can it not change? Um, uh, my daughter is 14. My son is 10. Um, when we first had Mia, having children was a massive wake-up call for us. Um, we'd run our business a particular way and we opened Red Lantern with a bang. We, we won awards very quickly. The waitlist grew really fast and one thing we realized was as, as business leaders, as bosses, as human beings, Man, what are we doing? What, what does it all mean? We're meaning-making machines, you know? And we realized that we had not only the power, but also the responsibility to make a difference, to make a social impact. And uh, my husband, Mark, is quite the socialist. <laughs> um, so we were one of the first restaurants to promote advocate, believe in sustainable produce, um, organic and sustainable produce. And this was something that we were, it was something that we'd been thinking about so much and you know, we recycle, we, we really police the waste and we, we decided to change our business model and we got waterless walks, we spent several tens of thousands of dollars on getting waterless walks. So in, in, for those who don't know, um, old school walks would constantly have water jets to keep the temperature low. And it was always something that bugged us. You know, there's such a waste of water. It was just 
constant. So we, we heard that there was waterless walks. Um, we got um, compost at the back. Uh, Mark was farming worms. <laughs> um, we started a little garden at the back, um, recycled everything. Um, uh, you saw the organic oil come in <laughs> and we really changed our philosophies and we got rid of all the suppliers who couldn't tell us the provenance of our cuisine and the provenance of our produce. Sorry. And um, we gained a whole lot of new suppliers who just gave a shit, who, who just really started to care. And that has a domino effect, of course. And um, we're not that smart, you see, because we decided to do all of this smack bang in the middle of the global financial crisis. <laughs> uh, we fell to our knees. We fell to our knees. Um, the extra cost of organic and sustainable produce, um, we had no choice but to increase our prices. While all the other restaurants were shutting up shop. Um, we lost a whole lot of customers um, from having a pumping, busy restaurant with long wait lists to now having empty chairs. Um, but you know, and this is where the spirit comes in, right? Because there's something that says, there's something bigger here. There's something bigger here. We can't give up so quickly. Because over and over again, I realized that the universe rewards the unreasonably determined. <laughs> the universe rewards the unreasonably determined. And so, um, we reframed the losing of all the all the um, the customers who believed that Vietnamese food should still remain cheap and cheerful. Mm -hmm. And uh, when I say we fell to our knees financially, we really fell to our knees. But we we stuck with it. We believed in something. There was something higher than ourselves. And um, and then what started happening was we started gaining a whole lot of new customers. Um, and customers who, because of the state of the economy, they still wanted to eat out. They just didn't, they just couldn't afford to eat out in the restaurants that they used to eat out in. And Red Lantern, uh, we weren't cheap, we weren't expensive, but we sat beautifully in the middle. And what we did offer was exquisite Vietnamese cuisine, but we had a social conscience. We had a social conscience. And um, this made our new clientele as well as existing clientele, very, very happy. And um, it made us happy as well. And uh, a fresh wave of customer came in uh, and we were in spirit again, we were inspired again. So for every obstacle, there's always an opportunity and it, it's great that you stuck at it. You know, as you see it, a lot of people closed up shop. When the going got tough, you know, the tough get going or, and, and those that don't just disappear. So, um, you know, that's, yeah. it's fantastic to see where you've got to now. And as you say, the, the more you stick at something, the greater it can be in the future. Yes, so. absolutely. The obstacle is the way. Have you you've read uh, Ryan Holiday's book, The Obstacle is no, the Way? No, I haven't. It's one of my Bibles. Um, the Obstacle is the Way is written by a guy called Ryan Holiday. He has a marketing background. And um, you mentioned earlier um, finding comfort in the discomfort. Uh, and so you raise the bar every time. Holiday argues that obstacles don't inhibit our success. Obstacles create our success. And how we respond to obstacles, the operative word being respond and not react, how we respond to obstacles is what will define us. 
And so from here to there, from here to the other side of the obstacle, if I have to dig under it, smash through it, jump over it, run around it, from here until the other side of my obstacle is my pot of gold. It's my pot of gold because from here to there, all the new voices you've got to listen to, all the new systems you've got to implement, all the new concepts you've got to learn, the new person you have to become, from here to there is going to be my pot of gold. That's the growth. And, but growth and crisis is not an opportunity to give up, it's an opportunity to evolve mm. <laughs> uh, um, and revolutionize. So can you explain to the audience the relevance of your father asking the question, why does the Buddha sit on a lotus flower? It's such a relevant, in my new book, um, The Way of the Spiritual Entrepreneur, not a lot of people know it yet. Um, there is a mandala on there and it's an abstract version of the lotus flower mm. and so um, my first book secrets of the red lantern uh, it would be over 10 years ago now it was launched in 2002 and it's a very dark and personal memoir which i disguise as a cookbook <laughs> so people <laughs> would buy it <laughs> It worked a treat. I won debut writer of the year. It became an international bestseller. And um, no one was more surprised than myself when I won debut writer of the year. I didn't even have a, a formal writing background. Um, and it was always my intention to finish the book and then give it to my father in its entirety so that he could see the full arc of the story, so that he could see what a beautiful story it really is. Mm. Right? Um, it's a beautiful story about personal freedom and family and hope and, uh, and, and the difficult beginnings and, and what it took to get here. And my main motivation for writing it was for my daughter Mia. Yep. So that she can understand why I'm the particular person that I am. And by the seventh chapter, my father demands to read the story. And I freak out because the seventh chapter is the most scathing account about him. Mm. And the book's not meant to be a scathing account about him. It's a beautiful story. Yeah. I wanted to see him to see the full arc of the story. But you don't say no to my father, right? And the seventh chapter is... Um, it, in order to talk about the good stuff, we have to share some of the bad stuff as well, right? For, for context. And so I had no choice but to hand over my unfinished manuscript, um, the story about his life written by his prodigal daughter. And I, I didn't hear from him for three months. Wow. And I needed to hear from him. I needed, I needed to finish this book. And um, so the obstacle is the way, right? I hadn't read it then. Though. <laughs> so Father's Day came. And I, I decided to go home and face the music. And uh, I drove home to Bonnyrigg and I'd just given birth. I had Mia in the car. And I go home to Bonnyrigg, they open the door, they see Mia, they take her from me, they're so happy to see her. And uh, in traditional fashion, they've cooked a feast. Um, and we sit down to eat. I still re even remember the dishes, caramelized pork, tomato prawns, roast duck and a, a, a very traditional broth of bitter melon soup and I'd speak about those those dishes in the book 
and we sit down to eat and I ask my father, Dad, what do you think about my book? And he says, it's good, it's good. There's just one thing wrong. There's just one thing wrong. And I say to him, well, what's that one thing, Dad? He says, the fish sauce recipe is wrong. <laughs> I go, oh, my God, what's going can't be happening. This, what do you mean the fish sauce recipe is wrong? And I was getting really frustrated because, and I'm sure this is like that in many families, we're doing the same pattern. We're acting. You know, we're pretending again. Yeah. And... I'm so frustrated because you know we're never going to connect if we if we continue doing things that we've always done and so we we eat we pretend some more and I ask him again dad what do you think about my book and he, he gives me the same response about the bloody fish sauce recipe and I, I grab my baby I grab my things I'm about to leave and I stop I center myself I take a breath and I ask him one last time because he sees that I'm about to leave now. And I said, Dad, what do you think about my book? And that's when he said, do you know why Buddha sits on a lotus flower? And um, I said, no, Dad, why, why does Buddha sit on a lotus flower? And he says, well, there's nothing as beautiful as a lotus flower. Out of watery chaos it grows emerging from the depths of a muddy swamp and yet it remains so pure and unpolluted by it. The beautiful thing about a lotus flower is that it's so pure you can eat it, all of it. The leaves, the roots, the stems, the seeds, the petals. And he says, but the lotus flower has another characteristic. Its stalk you can easily bend but you cannot easily break. It has tenacious fibers that hold the plant together. And he looks at me and he says, my children are lotus flowers. Wow. You have grown out of the aftermath of war. You have grown up in Cabramatta during its murkiest time. And you have grown out of me. I am mud. I am dirt. I am shit. I am very lucky to have you all. And so, of course, I wrote about that whole scenario in the final chapters of the book. And that was the defining moment that brought you back together? Yeah. Wow. But how brave is he, right? How, yeah. brave, is, how brave is he? And later on, he said to me, there's a right time and a right place for everything. And had he read the book 10 years ago, he would have exploded and mm. probably beaten the crap out of my mum, my brothers and myself. And, um, you know, life has beautiful timing. Yeah. Well, so, and that, that, that whole power of that award-winning book has brought you back together. It has, I, I'd imagine, changed many people's lives that have read the book and learned a lot from it. Overwhelmingly. Amazing I have um, um, three shoe boxes at home. Um, full of letters and emails from people all around the world and uh, when I said earlier this morning it's it's well, earlier um, in this interview about stopping and and really reflecting where we've come from and what it took to get here and uh, I'm recalling my overwhelm with all the letters and the emails that came from people all around the world and letters from uh, humans who had also experienced domestic violence and abuse 
I got letters from Vietnam vets who thought my father a hero. People came to the restaurant to meet me. Um, I've been invited overseas to meet people and um, letters from people who admitted that they were once racist and are no longer racist because they read the book. And one of the most profound things was the plethora of letters from the children of survivors of the Holocaust. Um, same story, different war. And so I think while the book was a catharsis, um, I was fearless in telling the truth. And it touched a lot of people and it has given me so many opportunities. I, I now have an incredible network of friends from all around the world uh, who, who I've met through the, the first book. Um, I became um, one of Australia's most book speakers because of the book. Uh, and because of the Red Lantern story, and uh, I, I have so much gratitude for all the opportunities that come into my life at the moment. Everyone has a story worth telling, and, and obviously for you, you're the voice for so many people that had, have a story that needs to be shared and understood and, and valued. So the, the courage that takes, well done on, on bringing that, having that courage, that fearlessness to, to write about it and to bring that to life. Yeah. I've had a number of people, and I find this fascinating, purely as an observer, um, who say to me, aren't you embarrassed to write about those stories? Um, aren't you embarrassed to tell people about your childhood? And um, my response is always, but it's not about me anymore. Even though the story uh, tells of my history, it's not really about me. I'm not that same person anymore, right? I'm using it as a platform so that I can assist and alleviate the suffering of others. And so it's very easy for me to go on stage and be stressless because it's not about me anymore. It's, okay. it's about the, the other person, that other person, that other person, and whoever out there, um, my story can assist. Um, so it's a very interesting framework where people still see, but ultimately, you can't make a difference if you're going to be like everyone else. <laughs> sure, this is definitely true. So moving on a decade, um, you, you've just recently launched a new book, uh, The Way of the Spiritual Entrepreneur, which you've touched on a little bit. Do you want to explain a little bit more what that's about and, and, and the purpose of it? I realized that the purpose of my life is to assist to alleviate as much suffering as possible. And the add-on to that is how then I could give them the tools to elevate and maximize human potential. And if a little Asian woman can do it, you can do it too. <laughs> And so when I first started my speaking career, Craig, um, people were still very afraid of the word spiritual. And I was determined, I, I know where the collective consciousness is going. And I was determined to maintain the title of spiritual entrepreneur. Entrepreneurs are the warriors of the world. We're the ones with our balls on the line every day. We're the ones with the audacity, the resources, the grit to make real change in this world. 
Um, the religious leaders aren't going to do it. The, the politicians aren't going to do it. Even our archaic education system isn't going to do it. And I see so many entrepreneurs in my coaching, in my speaking, in my mentoring, that there is today a suffering that has been misdiagnosed as psychological suffering. And it is a spiritual suffering. Spirituality has nothing to do with religion. I must make that clear. Um, it is religion that needs spirituality. Spirituality does not need religion. To be spiritual is to be in spirit, is to be inspired, is to be your abs, is to talk your absolute truth. Someone uh, a little while ago uh, met, spent some time with me and they said, you're meant to be spiritual and shit. You're, you swear, you drink wine, you um, eat meat. And I'm like, oh, <laughs> what's your definition of spiritual? <laughs> and they said, I, I, I thought it was, and, and it was interesting because in their head, it's, um, you know, this woo-woo-ness, uh, this voodoo-ness, um, you know, sitting on a, a, a Himalayan mountain, chanting and eating nothing but lentils. So, okay. You, you can own that definition. Um, my definition of spiritual is taking absolute responsibility for where you are right now, taking absolute responsibility for the vision that you hold of yourself in the future. Spirituality is speaking your truth no matter what, but with skill, with compassion, with joy. And so I see so many entrepreneurs living the old paradigm of living someone else's dream. How can I succeed, 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 succeed? And it's so important now to redefine what success is, to redefine what happiness is. And so they, they, they have, some have very full bank accounts, but they're spiritually bankrupt. Some have huge spirituality and they do all the things you need to do to be um, put into that category, but they have been empty bank accounts. And so the spiritual entrepreneur has inner abundance, inner power, inner peace, but also outer abundance. And the more we have of both, the more we can give, the more resource we have to create more and assist more people. And so the way of the spiritual entrepreneur, I'm tired of reading about the pursuit of happiness. And in, 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 in so much of my coaching, people are saying, I've been told I'm meant to be happy, but I'm not. There's something wrong with me. There must be something wrong. There's nothing wrong with you. You're meant to experience the full gamut of emotions. But when we have this paradigm of seeking happiness, the pursuit of happiness, if we're pursuing something, then we don't have it yet. If we're constantly pursuing, it's not possessed. <laughs> um, and, and so how about finding happiness in the pursuit? And so happiness alone is not such a great orientation fearlessness fearlessness because fear is an illusion in so many cases right um, when we experience fear we only use 10% of our mental emotional physical capacity how about we see beyond the veil see through the illusion half the stuff we fear doesn't even happen right it's it's the the ruminations in our head but then also understanding the science behind it how then can we be stressless? How can we stress less? But then we also need to understand how stress works, how it manifests in our bodies, 
how we as uh, human beings are the only um, species that has this amazing thing called imagination. <laughs> and most of the time it's imagining the worst. Exactly. Um, and then we get hijacked. How then do we know, um, understand the tools to prepare ourselves? Um, you know, they, people call it meditation. I call it mind training or mind boxing. <laughs> how then can we arrest it fast? And then the other side of it is the unshakability. So the way of the spiritual entrepreneur, the seven secrets to becoming fearless, stress-free and unshakable in business and in life. I mentioned earlier to be unshakable isn't to shut our eyes and our ears to the natural vicissitudes and ebbs of life. It's understanding that you're allowed to cry, you're allowed to be sad, you're allowed to be angry, but you get to choose how long you stay there for. Right? It's acknowledging the emotion, but you choose how long, because suffering is inevitable. Pain is inevitable. But the stories, the ruminations, the continuous suffering, that's the choice, right? And how, how in the business world and, 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 and in life, adversities and challenges is a natural part of life, but how can we remain unshakable to that? Unshakable to not being hacked. Google's trying to hack us, Facebook's trying to hack us, the government's trying to hack us. How can we say, this is who I am. These are my protocols. This is who I've decided I'm going to be. And I will continue to decide differently how I'm going to be in six months time or 12 months time because I'm continually going to grab these skills and these skills and these skills so that I'm not stuck and stale because I've got a whole lot of people to be an example for. My kids, my staff, my customers, my audience. What example do you want to be? Um, how will you lead by example? And so fearlessness, stress-freeness, unshakability are much more powerful orientations than, than, than happiness. And the main motivation for the book, and in there are so many techniques and tools and stories, are the tools, techniques and stories that have assisted me to come out of the fire and rise like a phoenix again and again and again, <laughs> hence my avatar. But also the same tips, tools and techniques and strategies that have assisted so many of my clients. And um, when I get off stage as a speaker, it's like, how can we get more of you, Pauline? How can we get more of you? And this is one way that I've been able to put a little bit of me to share a little bit more. Wonderful. So we all know smart people have great answers, but the best people have great questions. So when was the last time you did something for the first time? Well, um, I do something for the first time a lot. <laughs> um, it's, it's something that I decided to do a long time ago. And, and um, in the book, I talk about um, becoming a new person every time. I'm not the same person I was six months ago. Um, and I won't be the same person six months time and 12 months time. Um, my core will be the same, of course. And so I decided uh, about a month ago that I'm now gonna be a swimmer. I, was, I, I love the ocean, but I was never that person that gets up really early in the morning to do laps in the ocean. <laughs> it was always a fantasy of mine. <laughs> And I knew that I wasn't going to achieve that 
with the shitty swim stroke that I had. <laughs> and a friend of mine um, was talking about this new swim stroke called total immersion. And the fact that I have to unlearn everything in order to learn anew. And it's starting again, right? Started different strokes, different crawl, different, and I, I don't even kick anymore, you know? Um, and there was a time when to, the thought of jumping into the freezing cold ocean is, uh, is not a pleasant one. But um, over the last several years, I've trained myself to have cold showers every day. Um, I've trained myself to um, handle the cold because I know all the physical benefits of it. And um, for the first time, I can say, I'm an ocean swimmer. <laughs> <laughs> and where do you, whereabouts in the ocean do you swim in Sydney? Um, I swim either at Clovelly or at Bronte. Oh, lovely. And um, another one of my protocols is to get out in nature as much as possible. Um, this is a very big part of what I teach and what I coach. Um, I always say never underestimate the power of nature's medicine. We've become such an inside culture now and um, there's so much scientific backing uh, to, to go for a short 15 minute walk out in nature every day will reduce stress, anxiety, overwhelm, even the chances of cancer by 50%. Yeah. And uh, this compounds, you know. Um, a lot of my business meetings are held outside because it increases the cognition, it increases imagination, it activates innovation, creation, collaboration. And so we do business meetings as we walk and talk. Um, we ground ourselves, we walk barefoot in the grass. Um, and then to finish off, we jump in the ocean to solidify and anchor the decision making. Um, it also uh, keeps us creative. We literally remove ourselves from the box so that we can think outside of the box. But there's a beautiful healing frequency and which activates the pineal gland when we can um, sit and absorb the wonderful benefits of sunrise as well as sunset. So I'm um, a, a big maximizer. It's one of my Gallup strengths. I'm a fut futurist is my first one and then maximizer is my second one. So why not learn a new swim stroke while I'm in the ocean um, with the sunrise? <laughs> beautiful. Beautiful combination. What is the one question you would love to solve? Currently, I would love to solve how, how Pauline, can you hack your 14-year-old daughter's brain and heart? <laughs> I'm sure there's a lot of people out there with the same question right now. She's my biggest teacher. She's my biggest teacher, you know? And I, I find myself saying, if only you knew how hard it was for me when I was like, whoa, Pauline, stop that shit. I've created a life for her so that she does not have the life that I used to have. And so she's feisty and she back chats and she questions and, um, you know, Academically, she has no pressures from us. I would rather her be a social bee, and boy, is she so, so she's social. Um, school holidays, she's how how lucky how lucky am I? She's in the ocean with her with her posse, 
There's about 30 of them. Yep. They meet every day. And she's swimming, she's sunbaking, she's out in nature. How free does she feel, yep. right? And the one thing that was taken from me that I didn't have as a child was freedom. And now I look and I say, good for you, Pauline. You've created a life for her that you never had. So what the hell are you complaining about? <laughs> but if I had that one question, Craig, I'd be like, how can I hack <laughs> this 40-year-old's <laughs> mind and heart so that she can do the things that I want her to do? <laughs> Beautiful. So who has left the greatest impression and had the most impact on your career and why? Uh, uh, I, I, would, I would say this is a difficult um, answer to say just one. Um, I have an addiction to finding teachers and mentors to get me to where I need faster. And so I have a plethora of teachers and mentors. I'm a very fast learner. And the one way that I can attract um, them is because they know how fast I learn. Um, and if, you know, being a, a mentor myself, it's the most beautiful thing, isn't it? You know, because you have those who like to be seen to have a mentor and a coach, but their egos are too big and they don't actually, actually execute. Whereas you find um, a, a, a mentee uh, or mentoree, whatever they call them, um, who executes and gets it done. And, um, and so you want to teach them some more. And I have so many mentors and teachers who've now become some of my best friends, my best friends. Um, currently, as I said, my children are my biggest teachers. Um, uh, my son inspires me every day. My, my daughter fascinates me. She's a fascinating creature. <laughs> you know, this, all those things that they say about teenagers are true. <laughs> um, but you know what, Craig? As a spiritual entrepreneur, I'm always in spirit. Okay. Can I take away the word always? <laughs> because my daughter is the only one that makes me kind of lean to outside of the word always. Um, and uh, she's the only one where I lose my shit. <laughs> you know, it's like, but hey, Pauline, you're a human being, you're allowed. Um, so when we are always inspired by stuff, it's, uh, it's you know, what's she doing now? It's like, uh, my, my nickname is Ninja because, <laughs> did you see her do that? <laughs> no, <laughs> she's over there now. What's she doing over there? <laughs> uh, so how can people learn more about what you do and, and the best way to connect with you if they want to find out more information or, or get to know you more? Of course. Um, I am a coach. I'm a mentor. Um, I speak. Um, you can find all of this on my website, paulinewen.com.au. Um, a lovely website that's getting updated because I now have a new book that's going to hit the shelves um, March 1st. Um, but if you want personalized copies by me, um, you can get them via my website. And it's always a joy. Um, it's quite a meditative experience for me to write and, and, and wrap and send the book to you. Um, otherwise, um, come into the restaurant and enjoy what Red Lantern has been doing for the last 17 years. Um, most uh, Friday, Saturday nights, I'm here if I'm in town, when I'm in town. And of course, um, the new book, The Way of the Spiritual Entrepreneur, The Seven Secrets to Being 
feel less stress-free and unshakable in business and in life. I'm very proud of it. Mm. Oh, it's been an absolute pleasure speaking with you today here at the Red Lantern Restaurant in Sydney. Um, it's a great insight into your life, which has had a lot of challenges, but you've utilized those challenges and obstacles to create a wonderful life and use them to continue to grow and evolve as a person. Seeing how your staff work together as a, as a wonderfully connected spiritual team um, to see the way they interact with guests is, is uh, quite remarkable and I really enjoyed that experience a few months ago. Um, to, to feel the passion that comes out of you when you talk about um, your spiritual entrepreneur, the, the unlearning and relearning, the biohacking and, and, and the way that you want to continue to help people grow and evolve and get out of their kind of stuck ways that they've always been in and to unleash themselves, I suppose, as well. So I, it's been a pleasure, as I say, to, to speak with you today, and um, thank you very much. The joy has been mine. Thank you so very much for coming all the way from Canberra to be with me today. I, <laughs> thank you. You're welcome. Today's Active CEO Wellness Tip is all about every day is a new day. Routines can become very boring and unhealthy if we continue to do the same thing day after day. We need to have an exciting life. We need to try doing something new every single day. And we don't want to start too complicated. We want to start with something small. Things that take maybe like a different route to work, having a coffee, set of tea, drinking water. It might be taking the dog out for a walk in the morning and in the afternoon. It might be that rather than sitting down and having a meeting with our staff, we actually go out for a walking meeting. It may be that we decide to go for a run instead of a bike ride. It might be that we decide to choose more vegetables over the food we eat. It may also be trying something like setting a new goal, like I'm going to do a new triathlon, or I'm going to climb a mountain later this year. The benefits of attempting new things are really, really valuable. They make life more exciting. It brings you out of your comfort zone, you know, and it allows you to be a lot more comfortable in the uncomfortable. It's great for our brain and mental strength. It even makes you more confident and courageous. And that sense of accomplish of doing something new it's important that we get hold of our daily tasks and we continue to challenge them and do something new every single day. Well, that was one hell of an interview today with Pauline Nguyen, the spiritual entrepreneur. What, what an amazing lady, you know, to come from overcoming adversity and creating new opportunities. You know, having that life where she started out on a boat, uh, she was... She in a Thai refugee camp where it was very challenging, coming to a new country where it's a whole different culture, whole different way of doing things. And you know, she was able to take that adversity and change the world. You know, she's got they've established an amazing restaurant called the Red Lantern in Darlinghurst in Sydney, where it it, it brings life to an eating experience. It, it's all about being part of the family. And you can really see that in her staff who not only want to be great employees, but they also act like owners. So they really take control and take ownership of everything they do there and 
making sure that the people feel so welcome and so important every single time they turn up. You know, she, she talked about different, uh, overcoming the adversity and you know, the challenges with her father who was dealing with PTSD from the Vietnam War. Um, you know, that, that, that's not easy. And to be able to share, openly share the story of her life growing up and what her father was like to the whole world takes great courage and strength. But from that courage and strength, she's been able to help so many people change their lives for the better, become better people, to overcome something that's been holding them back for so long. I love how her children are having the greatest impact on her life. And, and, and that is allowing her to see life in a completely different way and, and just giving them the freedom, the freedom that she didn't have as a child, I just found so compelling. This, the, the spiritual entrepreneur, the, her new book, the, the Way of the Spiritual Entrepreneur, is fascinating. And I, I love just listening to her talk about spirituality being quite different to religion. You know, it's speaking the truth, no matter what, with the skill, with the passion, and with the joy. Um, and just really finding that both in abundance but also the outer abundance and, and getting that joy from that. It's all about finding happiness in the pursuit rather than the pursuit of happiness that so many people strive for. There's a lot of really good lessons to learn from, from Pauline and, and I hope you get an opportunity to read her books and meet her in person at the Red Lantern restaurant sometime. This is the Active CEO Podcast with Ordinary Don't Belong. Join the active CEO movement by visiting www.nrgtoperform.com. That's nrg2perform.com. Share this podcast on LinkedIn and be sure to tag in NRG to Perform. Leave a review on iTunes. Drop us a line with your feedback and questions and connect with us on the NRG to Perform Facebook and Instagram pages. Be sure to check out the next Active CEO podcast where the ordinary don't belong.